Okay, students, we're talking about Cantos 3, 4, 5, and 6 in Dante's Purgatorio. Today, quick recap of what we talked about yesterday. So, first person that we met in Purgatory, very similar to Minos and the Inferno, was who? What was the name of the person that we met yesterday who was sort of like the guardian of the beach of Purgatory? Yes. Cato. Cato of Utica. And what was the name of the wife of Cato that he so callously no longer cared about, leaving her in the past? Yes? Marsha. Very good, very good, very good. There were four lights that also illuminated the face of Cato as if he were facing the sun. Those are symbolic of the four cardinal virtues. Who can tell me one of the cardinal virtues? Yes. Fortitude, meaning bravery or strength of character. All right, number two, yes. Prudence, meaning practical wisdom or knowing what to do in, knowing the right thing to do in a situation in order to get the outcome you wish. So if, say, you have quiz tomorrow and you really want to ace it so you can ace class so you can get into an excellent college or university, which is supposedly some of your goals, and, and purportedly, I should say, not supposedly indicating that I diverge in perspective, then what would be the appropriate action to take today in order to make that outcome be what you want it to be tomorrow? We have a verb for this. You need to what before the quiz? Yes? Uh, plan. Plan is one word I would use. I would use a better word, though. No, not work. What is the word that we use as teachers for what you do before you prepare for a quiz or how you prepare for a quiz? Yes. Study. Thank you very much. Study. A word that shares the same root as what you are, student. You do know that the word studeo, studere, means to be eager, right? Very opposite from how you think of being a student, right? Because usually what is the emotion you feel as a student as you sit around all day listening to people talk? Yes, Bose? Bored. Bored. Yes, boredom. Yes, exactly right. Good. So we talked about prudence. We talked about fortitude. Two other virtues. What are they quickly? Yes. Justice. Justice. Fairness. Being fair to others. Yes. Supposedly, according to a contemporary clinical psychologist who does some neuroscience research, fairness loads on the circuit you have for disgust. And so you actually become disgusted with people when they're unfair to you. And in fact, if you think about it, you kind of make a face like this when someone's unfair to you where you kind of scrunch up your nose and your eyes as if you were trying to deny contagion into your body. And in fact, people become very offended when you give them that look. I can tell you that from explicit experience. A student has given me that look before or didn't mean to, and I remember being like, what? And they're like, what? <laughs> and that was a funny moment. All right, good. So we talked about fortitude. We talked about prudence. We talked about justice. We have one more of those virtues. Yes. Temperance. Temperance. Self-moderation or modulation. Yes, very good. All right, moving on. So. Who is it that Cato served under in the civil war between Caesar and this guy? Yes. Pompey the Great. Pompey the Great. After Pompey the Great lost and Caesar took control of Rome, the Roman system of government changed from a what to a what, which Cato was unwilling to endure. Yes? A Republican democracy which is um, a representative democracy, essentially so, into an empire, into a monarchy, into a tyranny, technically. Though the Aeneid was written, some say, in order to justify the rule of Caesar and to connect him to a historical ruler and founder of Rome, and if he were connected to a historical ruler and founder of Rome by blood, would he be a tyrant? No, he would not. And so, very clever reasoning there, very clever reasoning. Good, 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 good. All right, good. So we were asking, there are two reasons why Cato 
though a suicide is not down amongst the suicides in the Inferno. The first reason was he died for an ideal that was greater than himself, very similar to which figure who we will see in griffin form at the very top of the Purgatorio in the Garden of Eden, sometimes called Terrestrial Paradise. Yes, Jesus, very good. The second thing is that those four virtues that shine on his face shine out from him, indicating that he embodies them. And so two reasons why he is not in hell. He fully embodied all the cardinal virtues, all four of them. This is an incredible thing. I can't even imagine embodying one of them fully. And two, he died for an ideal greater than himself. And something we considered yesterday was, you say you were a Trojan, and you were free one day, and then the Trojan horse came in, your city got sacked, and you, like Hecuba, the mother of Hector, got led away as a slave to a new master and people, would you even be the same person? If you are defined, like Aristotle says, by your actions, would you act in the same way as a slave as you did as a free person? During the course of a day, would you do the same things? Would you do them for the same reason? Would you interact with the same people? Would you even have the same liberties? Would you even have the same choices to make? No. No, no, no. And so being uprooted from your people and taken to another and acting and having to act in a different way every day, you might say is tantamount to becoming a totally different person. And so Cato refused to be a person who would be enslaved uh, to a new ideal, the empire. He refused to serve a king. And so, well, just as his old way of existence passed away, so did he make his body and self pass away. Good, 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 good. All right, good. We talked about the angel in Casella. The angel is a psychopomp. It leads the souls to purgatory while they sing, in exitu, uh, Israel de Egypto. This angel is correlate to whom who takes the the uh, the pilgrim across the river Acheron in the Inferno. Yes, Charon. Charon. Very good. 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 In exiting Israel from Egypt, we know that these uh, souls are now free from some sort of tyranny, but not yet done with their work. Because if you are in the desert, are you yet home? No, unless you are a slithering serpent or scorpion who likes to live in the desert. You must say, Mr. Schmidt, don't we live in a desert? Yeah, but we've sort of made a hell of a day. It's not like we're hanging out in the dirt every day. And you're like, what about the beach? And I say, well, that's an interesting question. All right, good. We then meet Casella. Dante asks Casella to, to sing an old song to him. Who then shows back up and says, stop wasting your time sticking around in the past. Yes? Cato. And why? what are two things that Cato tells us that let us know that he is the sort of person that does not want us to spend time in the past? One is a physical action which Virgil and Dante are going to have to uh, commit, and one is an attitude he takes towards his former wife, yes? He makes them wash their faces. He makes them wash their faces, which is um, a symbolic representation of a symbolic act that many young Christians undertake. What is that symbolic act? Baptism. Baptism, exactly. And the meaning of baptism is what? What is it supposed to symbolize? The cleansing of sins by you physically wetting and then wetting. You go into the water, what happens when you spend a bunch of time in the water? You drown, so you die as a sinner, and then you are, did they just leave you in the water in baptism? It's been a long time. And then they take your head out, and that's you being what? Reborn, out from the water, out from, and I'll tell you something very, very clever. Out from, the Latin word for the ocean is Maria. Can you guess which name we get from Maria? It's pretty important to this discussion. Yes, Mary. So you're reborn from Mary. So who are you like when you're reborn after baptism? Being born from Mary. That's right. So who is 
Who it, who is capable of being divine in the world? Anybody. That's right. Bam. That's a really interesting one right there. All right. Canto 3, let's talk about it. We didn't get here yesterday because we were talking all sorts of fancy stuff. Old T on the back there said we had a very interesting lecture, which is always a very uh, fulsome compliment. What is it? Here's a phrase that you should know. To damn with, full, with faint praise. Has anyone ever heard that expression? Well, this is the word that embodies that expression. L back there is like, Mr. Schmidt, want to hang out? And I say, yeah, sure. That's fine. Mr. Mr. Schmidt, would you really like this new wonderful poem that I wrote? And I'd be like, mm, that'd be fine. Would I be saying yes or no by saying that's fine? You don't know. Isn't that the ugly thing about saying sure? Like, hey, want to go hang out? And you're like, sure. That, doesn't that mean I could take it or leave it? What you want to say is, yes, I would very much love to do so. Or no, I would very much not like to do so. Why am I saying this again? Why am I teaching all about, ah, yes, today I'm a full some praise. Don't worry, today will not just be an interesting lecture, it will be an excellent lecture. Notice this picture. He's got a scar, Manfred, above his eyebrow and one in his heart. You might understand this to mean that he's pretty scarred, that he's a real piece of work. You might also understand those to be the wounds that were given to him by the people that killed him. And so, well, let's learn about him. First off, we learn a new concept. He is late repentant, which means that he must wait outside the gates of purgatory, the seven cornices, on the beach, doing nothing, for however long it was that it took him to repent. And he repents in the last moment of his life, so he has to wait at least to the extent of his entire life in order to enter purgatory. What he did and how he showed this repentance was apparently by speaking the word Mary. And since he is in purgatory, you should understand this to have been a legitimate repentance. In the last moment, he did experience recognition of his sin and thus the pain of understanding that his entire life was lived in error. Which you can only imagine is, well, think about it. The last moment of your life, you realize you've lived an evil life. How does that feel? Knowing you can't do anything about it. Bless you. Do you think that that would be about the worst thing you can possibly imagine feeling right before you die. I would imagine that too. I would imagine that too. I mean, even when I recognize errors that I've told to say you, that I get to correct the next day, I still feel bad. I can only imagine how it would feel if say, well, let's see what he did. Let's see what he did, this man Fred. Well, supposedly a pretty bad dude. He was alleged by some to have murdered his father. That's pretty bad. His half-brother, his two nephews, and to have attempted to assassinate his nephew, Conradin. So, here's a big question for you. Do you get into purgatory because you committed a sin which is less grievous than those in the Inferno? Answer is clearly what? No. You have people in the Inferno for lust, gluttony, anger, all sorts of incontinent sins. Not that big a deal. This guy killed his own family members. Which means, I can think of two places in the Inferno he would belong. What's the first place? Not as bad as the second place. He's a murderer. Yes. Kaina. Uh, that's, the that's the worst place I can think of. That's the worst place. Kaina, which would be circle one, or excuse me, circle nine, sub-circle one. Those who are treacherous against family. Sure, true. Like Cain who murdered his brother Abel. But, where's the other place that he obviously would belong? Yes? Murderers. Murderers amongst uh, the violence. Seven-one. Violence against others. 
And yet he's in the purgatorio because of this act of repentance. What does this mean? Well, what it must mean is this. How you get into the purgatorio is recognition of your error and willingness to expurgate it. Expurgate it, expiate it, make it go away. Not by simply not sinning at all, which I think as an educator is a very interesting lesson for the purgatorio to be teaching you because it does not teach you that making mistakes makes you bad. It does not teach you that not making mistakes makes you good. What it teaches you is that the capacity to fix your mistakes after you make them is the best quality, which makes perfect sense to me because the more sophisticated you are, the more sophisticated the problems are you are going to attempt to solve. When you attempt to solve a problem, do you immediately find the solution every time easily? Answer is no, never. Problems are very hard. Last night when I was dealing with this recording software, I had to convert a .wav file, which is huge, to a .m4a so I could actually upload it because huge files, are they easy to transfer? No, they're super hard. So I had to find some sort of conversion software. I was tired from talking all day. Do you think my mind was working well or not well? Not well. Not well. It took me like three hours, didn't find a solution. Can you guess what it took me five minutes this morning? Finding a solution. Yes, and it's funny, it put me into emotional disarray because if these .wave files are too big, can I use them? No. Can I continue to use this software to record our lectures then? No, so I had to figure out a lot of things if I couldn't figure out that solution, which took me five minutes this morning. And so what we try and teach you in education is not to always be right, and not to, or not to hate yourself when you are wrong, but to realize that in the process of problem solving, you will always constantly be wrong. Wrong, 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 while you are getting closer and closer and closer and closer to what? The solution. That's right. And that is the greatest thing we can teach you. How to go from being super wrong to being not wrong. And that involves being wrong a whole lot. Isn't that also how empirical science works? Come up with a hypothesis, you test it, wrong. You refine the hypothesis, you test it, wrong. You refine the hypothesis, you test it, closer to right, but still wrong. Exactly. Do you think that's how the whole world works? Step by step by step by step by step by step by step, we build things up. Yeah, you know, maybe even if you think about what a pyramid is, maybe that's what it's trying to say to you. Especially those in South America that actually literally have steps on them. All right, last thing about him. He also gets excommunicated. This is the second concept I want to give to you. Two things about this. He's excommunicated twice. What does that tell you about this individual? Yes. Not very liked by the Catholic Church. Yes, very much liked by the Catholic Church. That's right. Pope Alexander IV in 1258 expels him, as well as Pope Urban IV in 1261. It just reminds me of that maxim. What is it that we know about cheaters? Possibly true, possibly not true, but we certainly say this. Once a cheater, always a cheater. And so it's like once a heretic, excommunicated, always a heretic. Because the second he's let back in, he only lasts for, what, maybe three years? Because if you read this correctly, he's excommunicated in 1258. When does he get let back into the church? We don't know. So he doesn't last very long the second time either. So, wow. One thing I don't have written up there, which I should, is can you guess how he dies? His own men kill him. They turn on him. And so I just want you to keep that in mind. Because his father, his half-brother, his two nephews, tries to assassinate the king, is excommunicated twice, and his own men kill him. Is this a guy that everybody likes or everybody hates? This third side is embodied in the real world. <coughs> Sounds like it. Very good. So, here's something you need to know about excommunication and how it works in the purgatorial system. If one finds himself or herself excommunicated, 
they must remain outside of purgatory proper for 30 times the amount of time they were excommunicated. So even if Manfred was only excommunicated for three years, and he was obviously an excommunicate for longer for that, 30 times three would mean how many years sitting on the beach doing nothing? 90. 90. Add that to the fact that he's late repentant, and it took him forever to repent, that's a long time sitting on the beach doing nothing. And so one of the first punishments of purgatorio is to do what with your time? <clears throat> to waste your time and do nothing with it. And so what is the comment that purgatorio is making about laziness or time wasting? That it is actually a what to yourself since you have limited time. Punishment. It's a punishment. That's right. It's as if you are punishing yourself when you are being lazy because you are not sleeping or resting at the appropriate time. I think that's an excellent lesson. I, and I also think that is the appropriate way to look at laziness. Because don't we usually look outside in when it comes to that? Someone says you're being lazy, you're like, whatever, I spend my time how I want to, I'm free. And yeah, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is you're in constant competition against other very motivated individuals who are just as talented as you, some more talented, and every second you waste is the second they gain on. I'd say those are two ways of looking at the world. One, especially for students, probably a little bit more effective at this point. That said, you certainly are free and can use your time however you please, but there are better and worse ways of doing it. You should know, and you do know. Okay. Next concept, prayer. <sighs> do I want to say that now? I'll say it. Good. So I'll say this in Canto 4. We'll talk about prayer. So Canto 4, the journey begins, Balakwa and the late repentant. <coughs> in fact, I'll talk about laziness. Uh, late repentance very quickly and prayer right now. So, Dante and Virgil begin the ascent. And Dante is tired at the beginning. This, I think, is a very interesting idea because think about the beginning of your day. How do you always start? Tired! Tired! Think about waking up in the morning. How do you always feel? It's probably dark at this point because it's getting close to winter. You wake up, you immediately think, oh, yeah, or, oh, man. Oh, man, that's right. Why can't it be light out when I wake up? What are we, farmers? It's like, no. But, you know, that's how it is. So, Dante is tired at the beginning. I think that's interesting for a couple reasons. One is this. You do start tired at the beginning. You also start tired at the beginning, not only of a day, but of a, but of a journey in life, because what has always happened when you are beginning a new journey? What has happened just before you start a new journey? You finished another journey. So you should never expect to be perfectly refreshed when you start any endeavor. But it makes me think of an old Chinese fortune cookie proverb. This is how old it is, like three days, because I actually got this proverb in a fortune cookie like three days ago. And you all do know that fortune cookies are an American Chinese invention, not a Chinese invention, right? Like people who eat Chinese food in China are not constantly eating fortune cookies. Um, good. So here's the expression. Laziness is resting before being tired. I think that's excellent, because it's what, what it's suggesting is not that rest is bad, but that resting at the inappropriate time is bad. And I think that's a good lesson to teach you. Laziness is resting when you should be working. And you should rest after you have worked when you are tired so that you can work again at a higher level. I would say that's exactly what I embodied last night. Usually I go to bed very late, try and get six, six hours of sleep, but I was a little beaten down yesterday. I was tired. I was trying to record with all of you. I'd used a lot of energy. I went to bed an hour and a half early. feel much better today. Not perfect. Okay, speaking of laziness, who is the embodiment of that that we need? Well, another old friend of Dante, the third person 
we meet in Purgatorio, and his name is Belacqua. In fact, Belacqua, when, <laughs> when Dante first sees him, he sees him huddling under a rock looking pretty lazy, and a small smile occurs on his lips. He, he sort of, his lips curl upward. And you might think about that. Sometimes when you see one of your friends and you see them doing something, perhaps you think stupid or wasteful, and you smile at them, are you smiling at them? What, what is a word for what that smile means? What is the emotion you feel when like, you come upon them doing something that you think is sort of dumb and you're smiling like, that's the sort of person you often are? It's a smile of not necessarily amusement, but do you know this word? Derision. Derision. It literally means to smile down on someone. And you are the risible animal because you can smile and laugh, very interestingly, because you have very odd lips. And so Balakwa, uh, a common, or excuse me, something said of him indicating his profound laziness is this. That once he was known to enter a shop at the beginning of the day, only reason he ever got up was to eat and then eventually to sleep. He did not like much to move, which means he wasted his day. Which means if you waste your day, your entire life, you've wasted actually your what? Not just your time. If you waste every day of your life, what have you wasted? Your life. That's right. And so that's a good way of thinking about laziness, too. And so, in fact, Bilacqua, who Dante says, uh, you know, it's kind of prodding him, kind of like you might with your lazy friend. You're like, hey, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? They're like, what? what? You're like, hey, hey, you should go up that mountain. He goes, what? No, no, I'm a late repentant. I can't even go up there yet. And so the idea is this, who, when you are lazy, who are you punishing? Yourself, because you just don't get to any of your goals. And so, mm, the late repentant, these souls must now wait in anti-purgatory for as long as they negligently delayed their repentance on earth. That is the length of their mortal lives. So Balakwa says, I can't even go up there anyway, so what's even the point of trying? And he's right. He has nowhere to go. He wasted his time during life, and so now his time is wasted during death. All right, moving on. Canto 5, Boncante, Shadows, and La Pia. Uh, I think this is where I actually talk about prayer a little. Oh, wow, do I make it all the way to 6? Okay, we will be talking about prayer. Okay, Boncante. This is very interesting. Very, very interesting. So, Boncante de Montefeltro. He was a prominent Ghibelline, so we don't like him, because we're Guelphs. So was Dante, White Guelph, you remember. He fought and died at a battle you must know, the Battle of Campaldino, that was fought June 11, 1289. And now I'll tell you a couple things about Dante that you may not have known. What do we recall our opinion was of Dante at the very beginning of the Inferno when he was often fainting and hiding himself beyond, behind the garments, or yes, the garments of uh, Virgil? We thought he was very heroic or cowardly? Cowardly, cowardly of course. Something interesting about the actual Dante, though. Dante fought at the Battle of Campaldino, which meant he fought against this guy. And then very interestingly about Bon Conte, perhaps you noticed this. At the end of Canto 5, lines 85 to 129 or so, there is a little drama of a dark devil, a black cherubim, and an angel fighting for the soul of Juan Conte. Just like there was a black cherubim or devil and angel that fought for the soul of his father, 
Guido de Montefeltro in Canto 27 of the Inferno. However, in the Inferno, obviously the devil won the what of his father, taking it down to hell to be forever damned. The soul. However, in this particular canto, in Purgatory, the devil loses the soul of Bon Conte, which means his soul goes where? Not hell, but rather, not heaven, but rather, purgatory, yes. But where does his body go? Well, Dante gives us a story about how the body gets taken down the river. I think it's the Arno. I've forgotten exactly which river. And sort of disappears. And so, one might ask this question. Why is it that Dante is so concerned about the fact that this guy's body was never found? Here's a theory that some scholars have thought of. Dante must have killed this man during the battle and has put him in the purgatorio as a plea for forgiveness from him, as well as indication that he has forgiven this man for being on a different side from him, that he has put his differences away. Very, very interesting. The second thing this, or the second concept or theme this illustrates is Guido, the father of Juan Conte, he went to hell. What might we assume would be the fate of his son if he were exactly like him? That he also would go to hell. However, is it your family lineage that decides where it is you go after you die for Dante? No, what is it? Like Martin Luther King said in his famous I Have a Dream speech. Is it, is it one's race or nationality or political opinion that gets one into the inferno or the purgatorio or is it one's own what's choices that's precisely right it's one's own choices so this is a very american or democratic idea i would say that even though his father is cast down into hell he as a person can make his own decisions this is the second time we've seen dante disparage the idea that it is not your choices that get you where you are. Just as we saw every character in the Inferno not taking personal responsibility when they attempted lyingly through their teeth to talk to Dante, we now also, and also when we saw that, of course, some characters like Renato Latini attempt to blame the stars or fortune or fate for where they are, we see again Dante maintaining that it's not fortune, it's not fate, it's not family. Three Fs. It's free will. It's choice. Your choices are what determine where you are and where you go, which I think is a fantastic idea. All right, good. Last bit about this. Last two bits. A theme that will be recurring all throughout the Purgatorio is the shades will see the shadow cast off Dante, and since he has a shadow, he obviously has a what that is casting the shadow. Body, indicating that he is what that nobody else on Purgatory, Mount Purgatory, are. Alive, he's alive, and so that's very odd for them. That's something to keep in mind. Third, this is sad. At the very end of Canto 5, perhaps you all remember, Canto 5 in the Inferno was where the lustful were. What was the name of the very famous woman who cheated on her husband with her husband's brother? That was all buffeted by winds forever? Blaming Lancelot and everybody but herself, yes? Francesca. Francesca, whose name means free, very ironically. Frank, Francesca, France. Let me speak frankly, all means free. Well, she was murdered by whom? Yes. Giancampo, Giancarlo, Gian. Yes, his 
her husband. Her husband killed her. Though, because of the conditions in, under which we saw her killed, being caught in the act, in flagrante delicto, with his brother, we all kind of thought, not a good thing that you were murdered, and your husband now goes down to Kaina, but possibly justified. Was that what we were thinking? We didn't think it was good, but we sort of understood the situation. That said, La Pia, who is actually Pia Ptolemae, if I just read you five lines or four lines from the end of Purgatorio 5, I'll read you six. 130 to 136. Pray when you go back to the world and are well rested after your long journey. The third spirit followed upon the second. Remember me then, who am La Pia. Sienna made me in Morema, undid me. He knows it well, the man who, having declared his formal intention, married me with his ring. This is the story of La Pia. Very sad. She was offered engagement by a man who later, after marrying her, found that he had won the affections and could marry a woman of higher status than La Pia, than Pia Ptolemy. Couldn't divorce back at this time. What was the only option he had if he wanted to pursue this second, more favorable marriage? Killed her. What did he do? Killed her. And so Canto Five, unfortunately, so far in the Purgatory and the Inferno, is the canto of people who are wedded by their wedded. Or wedded by their what's? Yes. Killed by their family. A little more specific. Yes. A little more specific. Yes, and y'all are using very fancy words. It is the canto of women who are killed by their husbands so far. Though, I think you will notice that you feel slightly differently about this circumstance than you do about the first. Is that true? This one we consider very much unwhat. Unjust, unfair, that's right, very good. We consider very unfair because could she, could she control the fact that she, married to a man, she got married to a man who later became attracted to a woman who was of higher rank than her and would offer a more suitable marriage to him? No, she had absolutely no control over that. And so we think that is profoundly unfair. Whereas Francesca, did she have some hand in bringing about her fate? Yes, we think perhaps had she not cheated on her husband, perhaps many crimes could have been uh, averted. That said, both very tragic circumstances. Okay. Let's get to, right, even if you look at this picture of La Pia, she looks very innocent, right? Even, even Virgil looks like he's given her a little bit of consideration there, and they're often pretty stern-looking dudes. All right. Canto 6, Prayer Sodello, and the beginning of the ascent. So, first we find out something very interesting. Virgil, and Dante brings this up. He says, hmm, haven't read your Aeneid. It looks like prayer actually does have an effect on the souls in the purgatorio. It can speed their ascent up the mountain. However, Virgil wrote in the Aeneid that prayer seems to have no effect. And actually, he, he gives some account of defending himself, but the interesting thing about this interaction is what? Well, traditionally, Virgil is the what to Dante, meaning that he gives the learning to Dante. The teacher. However, if Dante is now questioning the teachings of Virgil, they are becoming far more like what's equals or peers or colleagues. And the question I would ask you is, is the Purgatorio thus modeling education for you? Because the point of education is for your teachers to stay your teachers or for you to become what over time, having acquired the skills and knowledge they can help to build in you with your free will, of course.
What is the appropriate direction of a teacher-student relationship? Well, you might want to think, how do you get new teachers? By embodying the information, wisdom, and skills of your former teacher and hopefully adding to it, right? Dante and Virgil are becoming more and more equals. They're becoming more and more colleagues, more and more people who, uh, who don't just have one person giving and one person receiving the information, but far more like a bee and a flower that's actually a flower and a bee that share information together, right? They're becoming more equal to each other. And so actually the appropriate thing that a teacher is doing for you as a democratic free citizen is making you more what to them by increasing the amount of information and skills that you have. Making you more equal. It is very interesting the idea that a teacher would not compete with you but rather uh, try and build in new skills, especially since you are not related to your teachers, right? Why would they do that? Perhaps they care more for their society than their family. That seems to be the underlying assumption. Good. All right. So, prayer. I've thought a lot about this. Why is it that prayer speeds one up the purgatorio? It seems, let me play devil's advocate for a moment, that if prayer speeds one up purgatorio, that goes against the notion of the purgatorio, which is you, through your own recognition of sin and willingness to work, make your way up through suffering that which you deserve. Well, then, if prayer just lets you off the hook, what lesson does that teach? Well, 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 you need to think a little more sophisticatedly about this. Because prayer works because love is direct proof of justice. What does that mean, love is direct proof of justice? Yes? Uh, if you are being loved, that means that you gave that person loving you a reason to love you. That seems to be the case. And, well, think about it like this. If someone loves you, you are what to them? Important slash valuable. What is a clearer indication of your value as a human than the fact that another human finds you valuable? I don't think there is one. I don't think there is one. If another human holds the highest positive emotion for you, which means you have the utmost value to them. Think about how your mom talks about how much she loves you and would hate if you were not around. Then that means that you have extraordinary importance to another human. What could make you more important than being important to another human? Nothing. And so if you are loved by anyone, that means that you are actually what? Valuable, important. No matter what your skills are. And I think that's interesting because therefore no greater justification of human worth exists than being loved by another human. I think that's very much beautiful. I think that is a beautiful idea. And I do think that that's a true idea as well. And so a question I have for you to answer in seminar is this. If prayer speeds one up the mountain, does that mean that love frees one rather than binds one? Does love make you free? Very interesting, very interesting. The only thing I would add to that question is, if it doesn't, why would people choose to live in cities in close proximity to other humans and be subjected to greater rates of crime and disease? <laughs> you might say convenience and services and safety, that's all true. But we do like to go to places where there are lots of other humans, right? 
We like to go to giant stadiums full of what's. We like to go to big theaters full of what's. It's almost like, and if you go to a party and no one's there, what do you ask? Where are all the people? Where's it at? What's happening? That's right. Well, what seems to be happening seems to be whatever is happening amongst people. In fact, just something interesting about the German barbarians is that when they had clan meetings, they were in family units that were within tribal units, which were within larger clans. They would meet at a, it, they would meet in a gathering that was both, both a place and a time. And it was called a thing, which is why I use the word thing for everything, right? That thing over there. I had a thing in my head. What's that thing over there? You know that thing? Just follow your, you'll probably say thing almost as much as you say like during the day if you pay attention to it. Good, all right. Last bit from today. Virgil must ask or figure out where the doors of purgatory are. Why? There's a very clear, obvious reason why. And then maybe a trickier reason. Yes? He doesn't know where they are because where does he live? The inferno. So he literally does not know where they are. But also because you must have what in the process of purgatorio and not turn back even though it may appear like you are not getting any results out of your efforts at all like someone who is a student in class or like someone who is on a workout program yes you must not only have hope driving you but what guiding you yes faith that's right you have to have faith in the process because does the process immediately work no think about how a plant grows you just like, and think about, have you ever done a project where you had a plant? And I'll stop this now.